0: I feel fresh today. Almost as fresh as a freshman. This is good. This is good. I'm making puns today. Dad jokes. Uh, welcome to Christian Podcast, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we are going to talk about the after-college life. Sometimes as unknown as the afterlife itself. And for that, we're going to have an expert in after college. It's not me, even though I did finish college. And I've been talking a little bit about that throughout my episodes that I grad ended up like actually graduating 20 years later. But that's a story for another day because today we have Erica on the show. Erica, welcome to the show. How you doing today?
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling pumped, excited to just be here on your show. Thanks. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Okay, so from the five emojis, which would you pick and what is your strongest idea for today?
1: Okay, so my, my idea for today is, it's pretty simple. My idea is, I think, the church, church leaders, uh, Christian higher ed, those who work with young people and care about them living out their faith all the years of their lives. Need to step up and step in to the transition into life after college. We must do more to prepare our young people for that transition. And I'm going with inspired. Uh, this idea wasn't originally mine, and I, I can tell you more about that. Um, I had a rough transition out of college. Uh, that was also 20 years ago, but it could feel like yesterday. And um, it was a, a friend who came to me and said, Erica, I think we need to do something more for these young people in transition. And that was you know, years later when I was helping college students in a college ministry role. And so this idea that we maybe seek to actively uh, master what we passively suffer the Mark Savicus quote, um, I, I stepped in and said, this is a great idea. We need to do more. And I would say it was inspired even, um, I remember listening years ago to a sermon by um, artist Mako Fujimara, and he, the sermon was about creating into the void. This idea that like wow. our best ideas come from seeing those gaps and creating into the void, into those spaces. Wow. And this is a huge gap in higher ed right now. It's a huge gap in terms of college ministries and um, you know local churches really trying to step in. I'm encouraged by those who are stepping in. So kudos to, to those of you who are stepping in, but we need more people saying, I feel responsible and I want to prepare our seniors for what comes next.
0: Wow, what a great idea, just from one emoji. And that is the inspired emoji, everyone. Oh, yeah. I feel inspired, too. This is so good. I love how you're talking about creating into the void, almost like stepping in the gap. And so if I would use my pastor's words, he says, I believe the answer is is in the room. So whenever somebody's trying to propose, you know, this is our challenge, this is what we're facing, and he's like, okay, who do we have? Wh- who is in our team, and what are the qualities that everybody in this team has that maybe this challenge and this, uh, uh, yeah, whatever we're facing, maybe the answer's right here. And we just gotta tap into our expertises into our own abilities or qualities that God has already placed. So I love that. I mean, creating into the void. So good. That's gonna be the Kickstarter for this conversation, Erica. So let's let's talk about a little bit of what you do because I feel like you're precisely that. You know, you saw the need. Uh you I mean, you finished college, graduated, you experienced it, and At some point, you said, we got to do something about it. And you're one of those people who's doing something about it. So tell us a little bit more about what you do and who you are.
1: Yeah. So thanks. For many years, I led a program called Senior Exit with Penn State students. I'm in central Pennsylvania, for your listeners. And we are a stone's throw from Penn State University. And what we saw was there are so many seniors who lived out faith in brilliant ways and in beautiful ways during the college years. And then they left. And um, it was a struggle, challenges on every front, faith, finances, friends, all the things. And they were reaching back saying, can you help? And a colleague of mine said, Erica, how about instead of helping these alums, not that we didn't wanna do that, you know, after the fact, can we do something on the front end, something that is more preventative and less remedial after the fact? And that's where Senior Exit got its start. Johnny Pons and I said, let's, let's get this thing rolling. And so for um, probably over a dozen years, led Senior Exit here at Penn State and then got excited about how can I help other people launch these kind of programs across the nation? And so I'm thrilled to say that there's many more Um, senior experiences that are popping up across the nation as I continue to work with um, with others in making that happen on their own campuses and I'm just encouraged by more people stepping into the responsibility of this. I have my master's from Geneva College and I got to research kind of the the effectiveness of our program through my capstone project and was super encouraged to find this this is making a difference in the lives of students um, gathered many, many stories during that research, and that's what became really the fuel for the After College book. And um, continue to love to resource uh, prof- professionals, practitioners across the nation who say, "Give me those things that I need to exit these seniors well."
0: Wow! What a great heart. That is amazing and beautiful. And thank you for stepping in, and even kudos to you for for doing this. That is so cool uh so this I think these
1: things find us right I I just was in room you know these things find us yeah Uh yeah that
0: makes sense okay so I'll tell my story real quick coming out of college and then I want to hear yours and then we're going to kind of like develop from there into what are some scenarios that the typical scenarios that people face after college Uh, so mine was when I finished college, didn't really get my diploma, like I said, until like 20 years later. Maybe it was 15 years later, but after 10 years, everything sounds like 20 years passed by, right? (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, I ended my school in Mexico. That's where I grew up, in Guadalajara. Next year, so that was 2020, that was 2004, the beginning of 2004. I came to America right after. And then by 2005, I was here for good. I'm not going to go into the details of what being here for good means. (laughs) In some other episodes, I elaborate on that. But I'm just going to say I'm here for good since 2005. So in a sense, it was almost like right after college. And then this is what my experience, right? And I'm going to try to make it short because I want to hear yours. But um, my experience was, wow, I... I've been studying for so long, and I'm I'm in a different country under a very specific set of challenges for myself, uh, with a very specific and almost like limited uh, family around me who could kind of like be supportive and things like that. Uh, Maybe even limited resources. I'm just gonna put it that way, and it's also the time where I'm like, am I going to get married? Who am I going to marry? And then I ended up getting married uh, three years after in 2008, or well, maybe four years later. And then I realized, wow, okay, so I mean, life after college, it was almost like now I'm married. Now it's it's an entire different experience, whatever I've lived in the US, then than my whole entire life in Mexico, right? Mexico was growing up as a kid, going to school, And then the U.S. was almost like, okay, here's the real world with a whole new set of challenges after college. So that's a little bit of me. What was it like for you, Erica?
1: Wow, thank you for sharing that. And I mean, it sounds like your transition was even further complicated by, this is a whole cultural transition in addition to leaving the unknown of college and just what is it to be a student for many years in a a school system. Uh, I think you point out, Just that transition is full of concurrent stressors and many people think they're ready when it's like, oh, check, check, check. I have these things figured out, but there's so many different facets to that transition. And um, I wish someone would have better prepared me for all those different facets. I had a good head on my shoulders. I loved college. Um, I had no real post-graduation plan. I ended up moving out here to central Pennsylvania I had a college roommate who was also a writing major. And she said, hey, let's have a writer's house. You know, we can encourage each other to keep writing. I don't know how we thought we were going to monetize our lives. Like no one was, we weren't getting these big book contracts. We were (laughs) like poets, writing poetry, thinking, you know, no, and no one moves to state college without a job. So I don't know what I was thinking, but um, very much this artist who didn't have very good post? For, <laughs> for the
0: love of the art,
1: for the love of the art. I don't know what I thought I would do after college. I had some like bohemian idea that I'd be like in New York city writing and then ask me how many jobs I applied for my senior year. Zero. Um, so I really did. And, and that was just one aspect of my life that I felt unprepared for, you know, how do I translate this four-year degree into a viable vocation? How do I, um, How do I monetize my life? I mean, that was really a question. Um, how do I sustain my living here? Um, how do I find friends? Uh, my friend that invited me to move to central Pennsylvania, Kimi was the only person I knew. And she was dating a guy at the time who she spent a lot of time with. So I was just really unprepared for, wow, it's Friday night. And I have no one to (laughs) hang out with. And Mm. all my friends have scattered across the U S or even the nation or the, the, the world to do different things after college. Um, so the loneliness, um, the feelings of even just who am I, what's my value, what's my worth when I'm not seeing this constant performance feedback in terms of my grades or, you know, ways that I was used to getting feedback on how I'm, I'm doing. I'm not saying that was healthy, but, um, so I'll, just so much changed at once for me and I was not prepared for it. I also had my heart broken. So like, it was just all the things, and I'm not saying my story is everyone's story, but, um, what is common that I hear again and again is there's struggle in that first year out for many people. And if it goes more smoothly you know, than you envision, if you have listeners here who's, whose children are about to transition, it goes more smoothly, praise God. But if it doesn't, I wish someone would say, Erica, you're not alone. And, and it's okay to not be okay right now. You're not alone. You're in a huge transition and um, it's okay to not be okay. And it, it will eventually be okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, and I wish somebody would have said that to me, too. You know, it's going to be okay. And, and I mean, I don't even want to talk about myself today. I think I've done it in other episodes. But uh, there's a part that just rings so much true that uh, basically what you were mentioning is monetize. Like money is important, right? And friendship. And I think those two hit hard, especially like you know, as I look back in my my early years in the us were basically my early years after college and monetization was super hard right and even even the facts so I'll throw this into that i think it's it's uh, related to this conversation is the fact that i had a communications degree right that was my my what i studied and when i came to america i found out that really no it was going to be there were challenges that were not letting me like experiment with, with this, uh, uh, with my knowledge, right. With my capabilities, with my passions. And I worked in construction for like 13 years or so. Right. And it was almost like in this rhythm of, well, now I want to get married and there's got to be a source of income somewhere. Right. And yeah. I realized that for me, it was, uh, finding the beauty in that, because in a sense, I never thought I was going to do construction. And I was like, this is this is not for me. In Mexico, I never grabbed a hammer and put a wow. nail in a wall, right? Yeah. And here I learned so many things, even this studio and everything, you know, it's part of Beautiful. it because of what I've learned. So I, I don't take for granted the schooling that I had after college, right? That it's like, right. okay, here's some other skill sets that you still need to develop. And I stepped into it, you know? So I wonder how many people might feel a little bit like that too. You know, in Mexico, we have this saying uh, that's very typical that, you know, you go to college for three, four, four years and you end up putting a taco stand, right? <laughs> is there the equivalent to that in the U.S.?
1: <laughs> well, maybe for my major, as an English major, you end up putting these four years in and then you become a waitress, mm. right? I mean, is that, is that sim- I don't know if that's similar. Yes, I
0: think um, that, that but- translates.
1: Um, yeah, and and right now, I mean, there's we could have a conversation even just about those degrees that don't sound like jobs, and how people, mm. you know, even parents are saying, "Are you sure you want to get this degree?" And we've, um, in in good ways, are asking pragmatic questions, but I also think in problematic ways, we're devaluing the value of the liberal arts education. And I'm so grateful that I was an English major. I didn't say that when I first was out of college, waiting tables, but. Um, I'm so grateful for the critical thinking that I developed in my major and the writing skills and communication skills. But, and, and, and also I think to your point of grabbing that hammer, like it's okay. All work created good, right? And, and if the goal is faithfulness in all areas of life, you, had to, you right. had to put food on the table, like that's faithfulness. And so all work created good. I think sometimes in our twenties, we have this idea of like, I have to get the dream job out of college Mm. and surely we want to get the job that we trained for but how many people even 20 years out are doing the thing that they trained for in college we like to talk about the 20s as training for that next thing because um, we're developing skills even in those jobs that we thought oh this is surely not the job Mm. i thought i would have after college but um how does that teach us how to relate to people or how to manage something that we wouldn't have learned before and so I really encourage listeners to resist the, you know, the whatever job kind of mentality. Like this is the job Mm. that's just kind of the whatever job. God can use any job and doesn't waste any stretch.
0: Wow. I love that. So I'll tell you, you it's it's stirring this uh, memory in me, which I still do. There's a job that, uh, well, part of my rhythm of doing construction developed also into doing a little bit of landscape. And I was helping... Now, a really good friend who had a landscape company and I was his partner and we were doing, you know, 30, 40 houses throughout the week. Then at some point, you know, I moved on. Then he retired and said, hey, do you want to take on a few of the accounts? There were like five accounts left. I took him on. To this day, there's only two accounts left, but they happen to be right in the water, right on the ocean. You know, it's I mean, the place is amazing. It's in Corona del Mar. And it became almost like therapy for me to go there on Fridays. Now it's just I love it. I love going there. It's my rhythm. Uh, I do a little bit of cleanup, and you know, it's the time when I listen to podcasts. And it's just a tool that I'm using to almost like connect to nature, connect to myself, connect to God. And now the the important thing is that now I'm inviting my own kids mm-hmm. to come here every now and then. You know, one one of them is ten, the other one's twelve, and every Now and then when we get the chance, because it's normally during Friday, right? But let's say right now, summer's about to kick in. Well, guess what? My two boys are going to be doing at least every Friday. I'm going to bring them on, right? And they're going to learn a few of the skills. And sometimes they don't want to come because they say, I don't want to be scrubbing poop, no bird poop on the dock. (laughs) I don't want to be cleaning tables. I don't want to be trimming roses and things like that. And I said, hey... Don't you remember like the whole Miyagi thing, like the Miyagi-Do thing, that's like right. wax on, wax off?
1: That's right. That's you right. may
0: think you're not learning karate, but in, in reality, it's exactly, you know, you're learning some skills that you need. So what do you think in in terms of that, Uh, almost like the menial of the jobs that can be helpful, right?
1: Oh, I think it's beautiful. And it's not, it's, we're not talking about that enough. I think we have, you know, these, these ideas that I have to go out and get that... Um, that, that dream job. And, um, or, and we're chasing, you know, sometimes even chasing that shiny paycheck or whatever, but, um, it's these, we're made in these moments of the ordinary. I mean, what else do we have, but the ordinary lives that we live. And I think if we can't learn to worship God in the ordinary and to help, um, young people see the value of any job that, um, any job can be an act of worship. God, God says that work is work was created pre-fall. And so it's not this necessary evil, even scrubbing that bird poop or clipping those roses. Like that can be a way to connect with God in the ordinary in beautiful ways. And it can be an awesome way to train your young men, and, you know, train your young boys into men who value hard work. I mean, that's like, sounds like a big motivation there. And I think that's <laughs> excellent. Yeah.
0: Um, And they earn a little bit of money, right? So, I mean, there's a little bit of the reward of of showing up to do the job. So that's a good, so you talk about in the book about being faithful to God, being faithful to community, and faithful to our calling. And this, almost like being the challenges that we face after college, right? How do do we continue to be faithful to God? How do we continue to faith? be faithful, maybe in finding a community of faith. I know for, for a lot of people that is a big challenge, right? Like even connecting back to the church. So would you, what have you witnessed when it comes to, you know, kids after college? Some some parents even say, you know, I'm afraid to send my kids to college because they might lose their faith and things like that. You know, it's, it's almost like they equate college with, you know, now you don't believe in God almost.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think it's wise for parents to think about who's shaping, you know, my kids' education. This is those are the most formative years. Those those really formative years of of college in terms of, um, you know, kind of calling into question everything I ever was taught, and then you're you know you're deconstructing, but you're building. And who's helping them build? I think is a really good question. I'm so thankful for the mentors in my college years who helped me rebuild and gain a worldview that, um, really. Uh, for life, for for interpreting life, because life is hard, right? And we want a worldview that can make sense of our our fear and our pain and all of it. Um, but I think um, I, I teach at a large public university, and um, I mean, I had I'd, I have students in my classes who are students of faith, and. Um, they they have beautiful stories of how they have found their people in college, how their faith is growing. They, I mean, there are many professors who are, are wonderful mentors. They're learning to be critical thinkers at a large public institution. I'm I'm a huge advocate of Christian higher ed. I teach for a Christian higher ed institution, but I'm also an advocate for um, you know, students finding vibrant faith in a public institution, and they're forced to live this out among mm. among people who may not agree with them. And that's a life skill they're going to need beyond here. If they're going to if they're going to be kingdom builders beyond the college years, they need to figure out how to winsomely um, you know defend and and celebrate and call people into faith during the college years. And what better place than bumping up against people who have different worldviews than you, right?
0: Wow, that is so good. So, uh, well, I, I have two things. One is the the thin skin in adversity, which it might be a little bit related to what we were just talking about you know, a few seconds ago with with the jobs, maybe that are not necessarily what what we expected or the dream jobs. But is there what else have you witnessed when it comes to thin skin in adversity? in the after college years.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a hard conversation right now because I think even, you know, I was just talking to a college pastor, you know, a pastor at a, a, a liberal arts college. And you know, he he was saying how um, you know, in, in one way, right, our students are more this group of students graduating right now, more resilient than than ever before. They lived through a pandemic, they were forced to be flexible and adaptable. And in other ways, right below the surface, this fragility that we are, we should be concerned about, like, are we going to be, I mean, the mental health crisis that is our world right now, like, it's, it's concerning me. Um, I had my semester, my fall semester was, um, this was the first semester students were fully back to take classes in person at Penn State. And I I mean, I talked to other colleagues in the department of like, what's happening? Students were just struggling to even come to class. And I'm going to have a class where it's like, you have to come to class in order to pass the class. There's only 24 students in the class. Like you have to come. It's not this big lecture where you can just get the notes somewhere else. And um, I think just the the struggle to, with some of the basic life functioning. And I can't tell you how many even student issues last semester of just heavy things that our students are dealing with and so it it concerns me i think we need to really be attentive to what is going on um, with our mental health crisis and stepping in and and getting ourselves equipped i think for listeners here um if someone's struggling that they are reaching out and, but if someone um, feels like, I don't know, I don't know how to navigate this in my church or in my small group that we're getting resources that we're raising our hands saying, I need more training. I need more equipping. So that's probably a big one, but yeah, I mean, you've had students who they face more adversity before they graduate than any one of us. And they're, they're, they're going to be fine. Like they're, they're just going to move in stride. And then others who, um, you know, I think they need to put themselves in more adverse situations. Do a semester abroad. Do a semester in a place where, um, if you've never been an ethnic minority, be in a place where you're an ethnic minority for the first time, um, to stretch yourself and to prepare yourself. Because we learn how to navigate adversity when we're going through adverse situations, which is unfortunate. Like, hey, sign up for an adverse adverse situation. No one mm-hmm. wants to raise their hand for that. But it's those um transformational experiences that i mean all the studies show that's where the real stuff is happening that's where students are learning um why do we throw teachers student teachers into a classroom um because they need to face that adversity before they get there in their own classroom we need that for every major
0: mm-hmm. oh wow that's good i love that so uh <laughs> well there's a story that i was thinking of when you said that uh... I'm just going to say it, you know, just for yeah, the sake yeah. of being fun today, which you know, hopefully a lot of people that are listening, they know, it's, it's the age to have fun too. So one of my really, really good friends who's a you know, musician in Mexico and whatnot, he's got a little brother that when I left Mexico, he was, he was like a tiny kid, right? Like five-year-old, or four-years-old, something like that. And then a few years later, my friend came, he was touring the United States with his new band and whatnot. And I went to one of the shows and I asked him, hey, how is little Rafa doing, your little brother? He's Like, what little brother? He's like a teenager, man. He's a pain in the butt. He's like, oh, no, my parents. And I don't want to throw him under the bus. You know, this is like a fun story. He's like, um, just coming from a friend, right? He said, I felt like my parents gave him everything when he was growing up, like everything on a silver platter. That later on when he started, you know, being 15, 16, he just became a pain in the butt. And then my friend said this phrase. It's like, no, man. Like, he said it to me because I had little kids right back then. He said, every now and then, just make him trip, man. Just put your feet and make him trip. <laughs> so it was, it was almost like, I mean, not in a bad way, but almost like this sentiment of like, don't just give him to them that easy, right? Make it's him good. like earn it and work for it. So... Is that a little bit what, you know, the skin the yeah, can, can be? Good.
1: I think that's good. I, I mean, I I can say the same thing as a, you know, I, I'll i never forget the time where my kids were super little, probably like my kids are similar ages to yours, eight and 10 right now. And I remember, I think my, my daughter's my oldest. She might've only been three or four and my son, you know, just a couple years younger. And they were struggling with something. Like, I don't know what they were. They were trying to set up maybe um, a kid tunnel or something, something they wanted to set up. And I was like, I was ready to just swoop in and fix it for them. Right. Like, Hey, I got this, you know, let me help. And my husband watched it and said, Erica, let them figure it out. Like, don't swoop in. And it's just so easy. You know, I'm a, I'm a driven person. I want to help them keep moving forward. I'm kind of the pace setter. And um, it was, it was that a moment of realization, like they, I have to let them struggle with things. And I'm not saying I've, have, I've have no idea how to do this. Like I'm figuring this <laughs> out as my kids grow up, but, um, I, I do think what's trending right now. I mean, parents have, um, been called the helicopter parents that hover. And now the new term is the snowplow parent who just paves the way, like just makes the way for their child. Um, <laughs> the <snow> was, cloud? <laughs> um yeah, they just, the, the snowplow, like, um, uh, you're snowplow. plowing the snow. Okay. Um, I live in, you know, a place where it snows a lot, but, um, I, I saw a meme right after I got in final grades that says, uh, you know, if a parent, um, you know, contests the grade you give their student, you know, I'm putting out my final grades to my, to my students, the parent contacts you to contest the grade, you get your mom to talk to that parent. (laughs) Like, you know, this idea that it's ridiculous, but, um, you know, parents are, um, intervening maybe too much. And so I don't have all the wisdom to say I'm still a young parent, a parent of young kids myself. But what I can say is, um, you know, when I've observed parents stepping in too much, um, it doesn't help the student. It actually makes it worse. Um, And I I, I don't want to tell the details, but I had a situation this past semester where it was something like that. And um, the student really needed to navigate it. But the parent stepping in was actually making it worse. Um, Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay, parents, not too close, please. That makes sense. (laughs) So, I mean, out of this first, I want to kind of like tease that. I want to talk about the navigating sex and dating and some of the myths that are around this. But before we do that, let's talk about a little bit of the kids coming back to their parents' house after college or after whenever, right? And me as a Mexican, to me, that's totally normal. Like, in Mexico, it's very typical, especially if you live in the in the big cities. You go to college while you live at your parents' house. Actually, you don't call it your parents' house. You just call it my house, right? I mean, it's just a communal thing. You never say, okay. I don't know, there might be some parents, right, that say, no, this is my house. You, know, you, you get your own house, and then you live there. But for the most part, what I, my experience was is you go to college, You come back and you're home because that's your house, right? Now, there's a few people that maybe come from outer state, from smaller cities into the bigger cities because the universities are bigger or better or whatever. And then, you know, there's a little bit of that dynamic of, okay, you need to rent a room, live somewhere, and then go back home, whatever your town is. So there's a little bit of that, but for the people that live in the city, which is a lot, you know, millions of people, it's very typical. I just go to school, come back, and I'm home and almost this sentiment also of, I'm going to live here until I get married, you know, until I figure out what my next step is. And I never felt, you know, like my parents, well, in this case, they were divorced, you know, but my dad ever saying, eh, hey, you know, it's it's time for you to move out or something, yeah. you know, not, not, not also doing the opposite of saying, hey, I don't want you to flourish and get out. Right. But right. It, it's just, it's not in our mindset. That's what I'm trying to get at. So, what do you experience in terms of that for kids after college?
1: Yeah, I love that you point that out because there are so many things, there are so many cultural assumptions that are there being made in and even just, you know, terminology that goes out there about like what should it mean to be an adult? Like even theories about um finances, right? Like this idea that becoming an adult means I'm I'm out from under my parents' roof. I no, I no longer have any financial dependence on them. And so, if, if you have people who are listening and they're helping young people, I would love for us to just do a better job thinking about what cultural assumptions am I making here as I define the word adult, um, as I lead a workshop about finances. Um, many of our students from different ethnic backgrounds are not asking, you know. Um, should I give money back to my family? It's like, how much am I going to be giving back to my family after I graduate and have a job? And so making space for those conversations and normalizing that for, um, for different students of different cultures so that we're not pushing this dominant Western cultural thinking on our students and saying, this is how we're defining it, adult. Um, it's funny when, you know, we've I've had conversations with friends here where, you know, their daughter was moving back um, after college and they felt all this shame of like, I haven't launched my daughter. And I'm like, well, if you were in a different culture, if you, if your if you were, um, you know, Mexican, Venezuelan, you know, like there wouldn't be this conversation, like it would just, everyone would be fine with um, your daughter moving back home. Um, so she was like, I like this definition better. I think it's, it, you know, two students could make two very similar decisions and one could be faithfulness for a student and one could be, I'm not, I'm, I'm not listening to what God has for me, or I'm, I'm not, you know, doing the thing that is obedience right now. And so I think, um, you know, I mean, all across the church, if we could just stop judging each other, it would be awesome. But, um, especially in those ways of, um, you know, where we've imposed our, our cultural things onto, Onto others. But I think that the the thing to be mindful of, especially for, for those who the, the child did move away for college and then is coming back home, that's a huge transition for everybody. And that's probably worth a conversation of like, how do we want to approach this? Because um, I mean, I know for me, I moved back home for just the summer after college. And, um, you know, I didn't, again, right, my no post graduation plan. So of course, I'm moving back home for the summer. And It was. I was home for probably three days, and I was. I can't live here. You know, I can't live here. I love my parents. They're wonderful people, but it was all the autonomy of college, and then being back under their roof, and them asking me like, "Where are you going?" You know, knocking on my door, like, "What are you up to?" And I'm like, "I'm not building any bombs. I just, I just want a moment of quiet." Like I, you know, this this idea of um, it felt very claustrophobic. Like I'm in an elevator with lots of people, and. Um, it wasn't, I had to make a plan to, to get out, but I think just really talking through, I can tell you other stories of alums who moved back home and it was like such a sweet season. It was like for the student and for the parents of like, this is wonderful for both of them to just enjoy the relationship because they were given those years together. So, um, it could go either way. And I don't want students to feel like, oh, I'm selling out if I'm moving back home, but I also don't want students to feel like, oh, that's just my safety net. And I'm not going to I'm not going to be obedient and launch out if they need that push.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're saying almost like the cultural assumption in the U S of after 18, you're out for good should be a little bit like taken to consideration again and re- revisit it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to get pushback from people who, cause we have, we have two things trending right now, right? We have the, we have a conversation around failure to launch and this, extended adolescence and um you know when i was when i was in my twenties arrested development that t that tv show was very popular arrested development and you know, people were gathering. These young people were gathering together in the local church to like watch episodes of Arrested Development. Wow. And at first, I was like hanging out with these these folks, and then I kind of came to this moment of like, you know, what? I don't really want to arrest my development. Like, I do want to like develop into you know a functioning adult person. And so, you know, I I stopped going as often. But the, my point is, we do have this like we do have issues, I think, of um, failure to launch. And I mean, even um, Jeffrey Arnett coining that emerging adulthood term, um, there's things that are really helpful about that, I think, to to keep in mind, um, students are meandering towards certain life goals. And um, there's, there's beauty in celebrating this, you know, diversity of how people, um, people's trajectories go. So yes, I do think we need to like not shame our neighbor if their eighteen-year-old moves back home after college, and I also think um, we need to challenge young people that you know um, thirty isn't the new twenty, like the Meg J phrase of mm. you, you, the decisions you make in your twenties are setting you on a trajectory, and so to just have like one grow year after the next, and please go fund me to do it—that's not maybe the life that you know. I, I, I hold both of those in tension so. Um, I, don't, I didn't give you a very helpful answer, but I think it's both and. I think, and it's, it's situational, right? Like, what's the situation of why this young person is moving back home? Um, so, yeah.
0: I, I love it. So I think at Unison, we need to say something, especially, I mean, I'm like 20 years after college or whatever. Uh, I would love to say this to you who is listening, is maturing is actually pretty good. Right. Would you say that?
1: <laughs> yeah. All
0: right. So part of maturing is also how do we navigate that area, especially in those years that, I mean, it's so important, uh, like you said, you know, when whatever you do in your 20s change, can change and shift the trajectory of your life in your 40s and 50s. And I, I think, you know, even as a man, I don't know, know how other people feel, but I do feel like this is a super hot topic in those years. You know, even looking back, I'm like, wow, what, what do I do with my my sexuality, right? And you no, know, I was I was one of the guys almost like waiting for to be married, you know, to to have the one person and whatnot. But I realized, you know, that the the more I was in college that it was not the case for a lot of other people, right? Just listening from other people's experiences and whatnot. So what are some of the maybe the myth busters that you talk about when it comes to navigating sex and dating after college.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I have a lot of compassion for young people who are navigating sex and dating right now. It is not a friendly landscape to be navigating those things. Um, And I don't know how you do it in a way that honors God without other people who think like you and the Holy spirit. Like if you're going to pursue this in a way that gives God honor, I don't know how we do it without other like-minded Christians and um, and God's Holy Spirit that He promises us. Um, so I, I will. I'm not pretending that this is an easy road to walk, but I, I think what I can specifically talk about is right after college, some of the the temptations that can come, and what I've noticed with people right after college is um, maybe this lie that you know if I can find my person my life is going to become stable because so much is shifting and often we're looking for that stability somewhere. Um, and even if we know in our mind, okay, like Jesus can be stability. God is a rock. We can look for that in sometimes the wrong places. And I can tell you story after story of alums who, Um, And I wrote about one specific alum in the book who, you know, he, he would say I had boundaries, I had values. I knew what I, what I wanted and didn't want. And yet um, when he met this young woman, it was like, that started to, it started to compromise those things and started kind of believing that lie, like, okay, this, this relationship is stability in this shifting time. I, you know, I'm lonely. Um, I moved, you know, halfway across the U S for this, you know, job or grad program. I I can't remember which, and, um, and then it was because he didn't have that community around him established yet, it was just easy to slide into um, something that was not the best. And I wish that was just like one random story. But I've heard stories like that again and again, students who just compromise like, okay, these are our boundaries, but then in the chaos of transition, um, compromise that. Um, So yeah, I think that's one of the one of the myths to watch out for um, is like looking for stability in a shifting time in an unhealthy relationship.
0: Mm, that makes sense. So putting almost like putting your hope and your your foundation on finding the one person. So is that idea of once I find oh, my yeah. partner, then I'm no that that part of me is solid. And what you're saying is not necessarily right. I mean, that might right. be good that you find the the one that you think. But that may not necessarily be, maybe not even the one, maybe the one is not the one, <laughs>
1: right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, yeah, I think just that idea, looking for that relationship to stabilize you. And if you think like, yeah, once I meet this person, everything's going to be awesome. Um, you know, if you want to have, um, if you want to have challenges in your life and to become more like Jesus, stay single. If you want to have challenges in your life and become more like Jesus, get married. Like either one of those things is going to refine you. And so right. I, I don't think it's like one or the other, or that we've arrived when we've, we get married. Hmm. I also think this is very common. I, on, I would say like in the Christian subculture in the U S is this idea that, um, you know, you, once, once you leave college, that window for meeting your person closes, Like if you didn't meet your person in college, the chances of it happening after college are so like so much lower. Now, granted you're in a, you know, in college, if you go to, you know, go to a Christian college or you even study at a public institution and get involved in the faith community. Yes, you're in a space that's an incubator for, you know, relationships that may not exist in the exact same ways after college. But this idea that um, you're, you know, eternally, not, it's not going to happen for you. I didn't, I didn't meet my spouse until I was 27 and he was 28. Um, so if I had believed that lie, which I'm sure I did, I think I wrote like some angsty essay in my mid twenties about being single. <laughs> Cause I thought like I missed my window, wow. but that is just a lie that I think the enemy wants to use to make us feel discouraged in that area of our lives. And Um, you know, many people are not, you know, the, the, the average age of marriage is now so much later. Many people aren't getting married till late 20, early thirties. And so, um, you know, and some of my friends I graduated with didn't get married till they were 40 and have beautiful, you know, for the first time at age 40. And my friend just had a baby. I mean, it's, it's, God can do all different things at all different times. And so I just, I want to encourage anyone listening who they, if they feel like, oh, that, that window has closed for me, um, that that that's just a lie. Um, I don't know God's plan. I have friends who want to be married and are still single and they're you know, following God in faith. But um, I, I don't know. I don't pretend to understand the mind of God, but I'm sick of the mind of people saying this is, this is mm-hmm. the, um, the window has closed.
0: Wow. So that would be myth number two. The window is not closed after college. Okay. That's so good. Uh, the third one I love that you have right here is cohabitation. Is the most practical solution. That's myth number three. What have you witnessed and experienced when it comes to cohabitation?
1: Yeah, I, I told the story in, in here of um of Ava and Jason. And, and they I was mentoring Ava at the time and she knew she wanted to marry Jason, but um he was gonna he was getting into this program. I, I think it was um in Chicago, and she was like, Well, I think we're just gonna live together. You know in you know until we can plan that wedding and get married and you know like that seems to be the most practical solution for us and i i challenged her i said you know i think that um god has something better and you know what are your thoughts on just on getting married before deciding to move in together and this isn't just i mean you may have, may have listeners who don't agree with my you know conservative thoughts on don't don't live together but even trending, you know, non-faith-based Meg Jay's book, um, she talks about, um, cohabitating and I can talk about non-Christian friends who cohabitated and it made it so much harder to get out of a relationship that wasn't, um, a positive relationship. I mean, and then you're just, you have years of sunk time into this relationship that, um, and Meg Jay talks about how it's easier to kind of slide and not decide because you're already cohabitating. And so, Long story short, Ava and Jason decided to get married before moving to Chicago. They planned their wedding in 17 days. Craig and I were at their (laughs) ceremony. It was this beautiful lakeside ceremony with maybe like 20 of us there. And, um, and they were so excited, because they were like, you know what, we are going to be those people on the dance floor at weddings, when they say who's been married for 50 years, you know, they're going to be those people because they got married so young, and they knew, they knew this was the path. I'm not saying, like, just get married, because you want to live in the same city as this person you're dating. Not marriage is not a decision to enter into lightly. But for them, um, they're, they're thriving, they have two beautiful kids, Um, it was the right choice for them. And they were, they were only delaying it because of a cultural expectation here to have the big wedding and to be able to plan that out. And, um, and they did end up having a celebration like a year or more later with more family, but um, it was the, the cohabitating um, doesn't, that it may seem like the practical decision, oh, we'll save money if we live together, but I just don't think that that's God's best. And I'm not just saying that, that that's trending in a non-faith space too.
0: And you even mentioned like a little bit of the statistics that um, I think it was around divorce that maybe cohabitating, it's more prone to, I think it was even like 70% or something to end up in divorce rather than, you know, marriage, which I love your point about like, what is your expectation even going into cohabiting, right? Are you even talking about getting married? Like, how do you see yourself maybe and ask the question, right? Maybe you're not even thinking of what the future is gonna be like in five years. All you're thinking is like, right now I'm just moving in, right? And we're together and we love the relationship, but you're not necessarily thinking, what is this relationship gonna look like five years from now? And how could thinking about marriage um, either help it or, or, or not, right?
1: Right, right. No, the research is showing that the cohabitating is leading to higher divorce rates. And so I, that's, that is concerning. I don't know. I don't remember the exact number, but um, I think this gets, I mean, your comment here of like, what's the goal? Um, who do I want to be in five years? What What's the plan? I think if we all just took a step back, even that, that young alum that moves home or, um, you know, asking like, what's the game plan? What's the goal? And is this moving me closer to that or farther away from that? Um, I think it's a, a great way to um to assess some of these decisions. if you're not if you're not um someone who's using a faith grid. And I mean I I would hope that if you're listening and you you want to put these decisions before God as like, okay, what is God's best in this situation? And so um I, I love how you're you're bringing that up of like in the in the moment this feels like, okay, this is working, but what's the what's the end game here?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, I've I've no, I have personal friends who kind of did it and you're maybe out of, because no, they had a, they were pregnant already and things like that.
1: Sure. And it
0: turned into, into no cohabiting. And then eventually turned into, no, they got married and now they have beautiful families. So I'm not, I'm also not saying, no, Hey, that's the, that's, avoid it at all cost,
1: right you know there's right. always but that's hope a, that's a god's grace versus like a mm. good game plan i think that's a, there's that. a difference because i'll have friends you know all students push back on me like well, wow, i i want to date this person he's not a believer but like you know these two people dated and like he became a believer because they dated and it was like wait mm. how about we don't look to that as a model how about that's like god's grace but not mm. not a game plan
0: Love it. So the the difference between a game plan and stepping into God's grace. So lastly, myth number four, which I think might be a little bit related to cohabiting, right? But being more specific, you say myth number four is what we do in the bedroom is none of your business. How is that a myth?
1: Yeah. And, and I pull that from um, Lauren Winter, Real Sex. And uh, I mean, not that exact phrase, but, you know, basically her her um comments about you know in one on one hand the culture has just flaunted sex everywhere. I mean we got talk shows where people are just you know sharing things that were never meant for general public um, in a totally inappropriate way. but then we also have this idea that um, our actions, whether that's um, you know premarital sex or pornography or like that it only affects me or it only affects me and that one other person when um, we're ignoring the ways that the, all these decisions form us and shape us and have an impact on, um, you know, if, if our current sexual partner, isn't the person that we are going to spend the rest of our lives with, like that is going to have an impact on that future relationship with the person you are going to spend the rest of your life with. And, um, And I'm not in any way in that part of the chapter suggesting that um we air our dirty laundry or like be public about our sexual relationships. But what I'm saying is that um this idea that my my decisions only affect me um it is not true. It's um and and if you know if you've had to have a conversation with someone that you were about to marry about your past decisions, that could be one of the most painful conversations you have. And so trying to make decisions with the person that you are dating that um, just really honors them and honors any other future relationships. And, um, and that's what I mean by um, it's, it's, it becomes something that forms us and therefore isn't just this private thing with no, no implications outside of those decisions.
0: That makes a lot of sense. We are communal beings and whatever I do, it does impact those around me. So, there is an element of uh, stewardship and an element of accountability with whatever we do in life. It's gonna affect those around us one way or the other, for good or for bad. So, here is what we're gonna do, Erica. This has been amazing. And I'm gonna give you an emoji reaction from the gods of Emojitron, okay? So, gods of Emojitron. What's the reaction that we're going to have today? And I have the divine emoji reaction. Wow. So right to reply. How do you feel? Because you love critical thinking. So how do you feel about getting a divine emoji? Do you agree, disagree, or would well, have chosen I, if, different? If
1: anyone's getting a divine emoji, all the glory is going to God. If we're going to be faithful in this, we need him. And any any good that comes of this, God, God gets all the glory, right? So thank you for, um, for that. That's I don't know how to react. That's, that sounds good to me. <laughs> that oh God. sounds good
0: to you. Love <laughs> it. OK, so now what we're going to do is your own chance to summarize the episode through our five emojis. So when it comes to the afterlife college, what is the most blasphemous idea that you can think of?
1: blasphemous idea when it comes to life after college Um, I mean I just keep going to this idea of like let's not we're not gonna do anything in this transition like I I keep seeing people who you know it's like don't let the door hit you on the way out we've got to do more because that's it's just not um, it's not the mission if we want people to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives we have to do something on the front end and so um, bla- I don't know if I would use the word blasphemy, but um, I love it. Great, I think that's a great question. I think you're
0: talking about <laughs> apathy.
1: Apathy, okay, right? Yes, yes. That's yes. blasphemous right there. All right, good enough. Good we'll enough. take
0: it. A skeptical or skepticism, where you see it played out in the after college life?
1: I think that, and I'm, I'm specifically thinking about those who are, you know, wanting to intervene during the college years thinking, is this going to make a difference? Like if, if I step in, is this really worth my time? Is this, this seems nice, but is it really necessary? Um, I would say this is crucial. This is mission critical. Like we have to step in and care for people. And then for those out of college who may feel like the, just the the um, the floor got pulled out from under me, like the carpet got pulled out from under me and I'm questioning everything. Like, is God really God? Um, I just want, um, I just think about that, um, that quote of like, just to be patient with the questions that you have in your heart right now, all that's unresolved and, um, that God is going to show up the Roka quote of like, be patient with everything that feels unresolved. It's okay to be skeptical right now. God is going to meet you in that, in that skepticism. It's okay to be skeptical.
0: I love that. Inspired. (laughs) Where I does inspiration to, oh, sorry, come go, go. from? No, 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 you go.
1: Where does inspiration come from? I mean, we can't really have ideas on our own, right? Like we we react to each other. Like you and I are having a conversation. You say something, it makes me think something. And so we need um, inspiration by listening to God and by listening to other voices, like your good voice here on Christian Podcast. So that's where inspiration comes from. It comes from listening to voices around us and especially listening to the voice of God
0: super holy
1: I think if we're going to live this out live out this faith in life after college we will be set apart we will look weird we will look different my daughter says to me the other night mom we're the weirdest coolest family and I was like preach (laughs) you know we are going to do things that are weird and different but um, it's going to make us set apart in a good way yeah
0: and finally divine
1: I mean I just keep thinking like all all glory goes to God if we're going to live for him beyond our college years I mean isn't that like what's our what's our goal to um you know to love God and enjoy him fully and I think like that's just the that's the good life I mean we're all chasing the good life after college right That's the good life is to enjoy him and I especially love that we talked about ordinary moments I think for many students it can be hard to kind of come off that mountaintop into the quote mundane of life after college, but um, it's only mundane if we um, reduce it to that I think there can be so many divine and beautiful moments in. Um, doing the dishes and folding the laundry, and just loving our neighbors, like our literal next door neighbors, um, swinging the hammer, clipping the roses, pulling the weeds in my garden this morning. Like that's divine. And we all we have to just put one foot in front of each one of the other, and and live this out. That's all we have for our ordinary days.
0: Oh, that was amazing, Erica! It was so, so, so good. So here I have it. After college. Where do you want to point people to, Erica, to find out more about, you know, where they can get the book or about the type of work you do and inspire other people to do similar?
1: Thanks so much, Beto. Yeah, please check me out at aftercollegetransition.com, aftercollegetransition.com. Or um, wherever you buy books, you can grab a copy of After College and, um, you know, connect with me on social media if that's helpful. I'm happy to be a resource to you as you're caring for young people or if you're someone who feels lost in transition, I want you to know that there's help and hope.
0: All right, we're going to dance it out. You ready? I'm ready. This is the life really after college. 20 years down the road. (laughs) Okay, my friends, thank you for listening and watching. You guys know me. I would love for you to leave a positive review, share the episode, like, subscribe, follow whatever you listen to, whether that's Spotify, iTunes, Roku TV, or you can visit us at christianpodcast.com where we have all of our emojis and you can disagree with that by choosing your own emoji. I'll see you guys on the next one.